This is an ABC podcast. Who's going to save us from climate change? How about a climate dictator? Some people actually argue that the authoritarian response to climate issues is better. So imagine a dictator from a huge country uh, requiring his people, and I'm using the pronoun he because dictators are usually men. Uh, imagine a dictator telling his people to stop eating meat or stop using cars or ban all industries that use fossil fuels. Then problem solved, right? Right. Who knew? All we need to solve climate change is a fascist to fix all our problems not. By the way, this isn't what Professor Nicole Carato thinks. Notwithstanding the fact that authoritarian regimes don't necessarily perform better with climate outcomes, uh, there is a strong argument to say that democracy plays a role in crafting legitimate climate solution. Meaning no one, no climate scientist, no economist, no ethicist, no activist, no one has the monopoly of good ideas and correct answers on climate issues. On Science Fiction, I'm Natasha Mitchell joining you from Wurundjeri Country and today bringing you a story from the team behind a brand new ABC podcast called Who's Gonna Save Us? A podcast all about the people getting on with getting us out of the climate change chaos we're facing. Practical, can-do, see-no-barriers or at least leap-over-them sorts of people. It's really great and I'm handing the reins over to journalist and presenter Joe Lauder this week for an intriguing story from France on what happened when people power tried to influence political power. And the French know a thing or two about democracy. I mean, they had a revolution to create theirs. But 220 years later, what does it really mean when it comes to having a real say? Nicole Carrado is a professor of political sociology at the University of Canberra. She studies how regular people can use democracy to drive recovery following traumatic events like armed conflict or climate disasters. And Nicole thinks that meaningful climate solutions need input from a whole bunch of different people with different perspectives, something democracy is pretty good at. But what you think when you hear the word democracy is probably something a bit narrower than what Nicole has in mind. Yes, absolutely. There is a tendency to reduce democracy to electoral democracy, which is to reduce our democratic obligations to voting. Every few years, we rock up at the ballot box, cast our vote and then leave it up to whoever gets elected. But so far, our elected police have been slow to act on climate change and we're running out of time. What Nicole wants is deliberative democracy. So... In my work, I define deliberative democracy as a political aspiration and also a political project. We live in a world where disinformation, hyperpartisanship, hate speech, misogyny, all of these have been normalized. So our challenge is to find ways to create conditions where ordinary people can express their views, listen to others, but also convince politicians to respect and listen to what people have been saying. So what happens when governments hand over their power and everyday people are given the power to come together and decide how an entire country responds to climate change? I want to take you to France and inside one of the biggest democratic experiments of our times, one that could pave the way for climate solutions led by people getting the chance to talk about climate change and listen to each other and the best experts. It started on a summer holiday.
was in Greece. I was, I was at the beach in Greece near Athens. This is Amandine Rochemont. In September 2019, Amandine was 27. She was in between jobs and she'd left Paris to chill on the beach when something unexpected happened. I got this text message out of the blue. Uh, actually, I, I have kept the text message. I look at it sometimes to remember that moment. It was exactly 9.24am and the message was in all caps. So, bonjour. Votre numéro de téléphone Hello, your phone number has been randomly selected to participate in a climate convention organised by the Economic, Social and Environmental Council in France. It went on asking, are you interested in taking part? Répondez oui ou non. At first, Amandine thought it was a joke. It wasn't. Amandine got that text at a time when France was at a political roadblock. A nationwide protest called the Gilets Jaunes, or Yellow Vests, had brought the country to a standstill. Paris has been the site of pitched street battles for the past month. It started out as a protest against rising fuel prices, partly caused by a carbon tax. But it quickly grew into a revolt against the government, led by President Emmanuel Macron. Shop front windows have been smashed. It looks like it's been firebombed. President Macron needed to show the people that he was listening to their needs. He toured the country, introduced a bunch of new measures, and critically, he promised that from now on, citizens in France will be more involved in big decisions. He introduced a citizens' assembly. You'll also hear it called a deliberative democracy or a mini-public. It's a way for ordinary citizens to come together in a jury of sorts. As representatives of the people, the citizens are asked to come up with solutions for some of the government's stickiest problems. Macron called this one the Citizens' Convention for the Climate. Their job? To figure out how France can cut its emissions by 40% by 2030. And Macron promised that he would introduce their policies unfiltered. Back on that beach in Athens, Amadine's text meant that she'd been picked to be part of this experiment. All she had to do was reply, yes, oui. <laughs> I felt really like a citizen duty. I mean, your country is asking something that is really meaningful for the community. Uh, I felt I had to do it. I said yes two hours later. It took me two hours to say yes. By saying yes, Amadine's entire life was about to change. But not everyone was thrilled at the idea of ordinary people being brought into the policy space. I, I remember very well, so I heard it on the radio. My first reaction was that, what, what the hell is this? Louis Gatan Giraudet is an environmental economist at the International Centre for Researching Environment and Development, or CIRED for short. Well, there are people like me working on designing fair and effective policies. And the government is going to pick randomly 150 people and ask them to do just what we've been doing for over 10 years. So, so I didn't see the point. But Gatan was also curious. He spent so much of his time figuring out fair and effective policies to stop global warming, only to watch governments and citizens reject them. He felt that there was a gap between the types of climate policies that we need versus the solutions we actually get. By chance, there, there, there was a call that was circulated to participate as an observer for research and observing the debate. So I saw here an opportunity to 
get a better understanding of how people handle these policies. And I was soon very uh, passionate about it. On the first day, Amandine had to head to one of the parliament buildings in Paris. All up, there were 150 citizens who travelled from across the country to be there that morning. I think we were all very nervous because we didn't know each other. So you have to imagine, like, you get in this big building uh, in Paris. It's very impressive to be there. And then you are just, like, taking a coffee and waiting for the thing to happen with people that you don't know. There would be seven of those seminars held over three-day weekends. They were all paid for their time. And from those initial text messages, the organisers had made a final selection to make sure the jury really reflected what France looks like. We were young people, a lot of old people, uh, retired people from countryside and during, having done really different jobs in our lives. And that was really, that was really powerful. The first seminar was a crash course in climate change. It's important that everyone was up to speed equally and the organisers brought in the best climate experts in Europe to show why it was so crucial to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Amadine had been to the odd climate march, but she says listening to the experts really deepened her appreciation. Of course, I didn't know all the scientific part of it and all all the, um, the data we got during the convention was amazing and I didn't have it before. So I learned a lot. For others in the group, Gatan said these lectures were a revelation. These were a big shock for many of the participants. Some claimed that they they came as climato as skeptics and after these lectures that completely changed their mind. Right. So they'd never actually, for some of them, they hadn't really ever engaged deeply with this issue and kind of sat down and learnt about the science until this point. Not until participating in this assembly. They then broke up into five smaller groups, each looking at a different aspect of climate policy. Because climate affects so many different parts of the society we live in, some groups will go deeper on, say, climate and housing, and others would look at transportation. I was in the consuming group, so working mostly on, like, how do you buy things? Why do you buy things? What is the role of publicity and what advertising has to do with climate change and how it can impact our behaviours as consumers? These guys became specialists in their area and would work to develop policies in that space. Every step of the way, experts from across legal, economic and political fields would be there to offer advice. The proposals had to be really sharp and uh, almost ready to to be uh, debated by uh, parliament or whoever was uh, the appropriate level. Gatan was a fly on the wall in these sessions. He says he was struck by how everyone came together. We saw passion, dedication, engagement. So that was exhilarating. And actually, there was a lot of, of passion and even love for one another and, and even for, for, for the facilitators. That doesn't mean everyone got on all the time. Of course, in a group, you always have like somebody that is talking ahead the others. And, and of course, we had that in the convention. We had people that were raising their voice uh, easier than others. So you really have to think about all these really human mechanisms uh, in a group and, and how to balance all of this and be sure that everyone has the opportunity to contribute at some point. It was a lot of pressure to be under. 
it was so intense at some point, like we were taking afternoons or day off at our job to go to the Elysee Palace for a meeting with the president. So it was crazy. Their work didn't end with the seminars either. And Amadine says many of them would be constantly researching in their spare time and having conversations with experts on the weekends. And then there was a media attention. We got to do interviews. We went public. And so all of us had calls from journalists and all that. And it was the first time it, it's taking you a lot of time, of course, on your on your personal uh, agenda. So I think you leave that once a year in your life, like this this kind of public attention on you, on your work, your voice being meaningful and being heard. You really have to, yeah, to to be uh, to be at the top and to be proud of yourself also. On Science Friction, Natasha Mitchell joined by journalist Joe Lauder in this episode. Joe's presenter of the ABC's new podcast called Who's Gonna Save Us? And we're inside an experiment in French democracy, a citizens' assembly held to get everyday citizens like you and me to determine the government's climate change policy. So people power meets political power. Only things didn't quite go to plan. The seminars went on for seven months. Meanwhile, life outside moved at a fast pace. Over European winter, they watched Australia burn in the bushfire crisis. Australia, the situation is already catastrophic, in particular in the region of Sydney. And then the pandemic hit. I am literally positive au COVID-19. Finally, in mid-2020, the seminars ended. Their policies were ready. There were 149 measures in the report. You've not seen the, the complete report. It's, a, it's on the internet, but when you see it, I mean physically, it looks like a Bible, really. It's so big. When taken together, these measures were expected to cut France's greenhouse gas emissions by nearly half. That's a bold drop. And so when these measures were presented to President Macron and to the public, well, the policies were bold too. There were the types of changes it's hard to imagine politicians discussing. We're talking about banning building new airports and scrapping air routes where you can drive or take public transport in less than four hours. They wanted to drop highway speed limits by 30 kilometres an hour, something researchers say is effective in curbing emissions. They wanted the French government to stop all their trade negotiations with other countries so they could write in environmental conditions. Then there were the proposals from Amandine's group, the one studying consumption. This measure I was really attached to was to actually stop advertising on the products that had a bad uh, carbon impact. What Amandine was proposing was a total ban on advertisements for products that are big carbon emitters. Like, for example, cars. We didn't understand why it was still allowed to have advertising on like the big fuel cars. So we wanted to forbid this kind of publicity. And you might be wondering how they'd pay for all these policies. The Assembly decided it was up to big corporations to foot the bill. So with a report the size of the Bible sitting on President Macron's desk, it was up to him to pass these policies into law. Climate change requires us to do more, like the people are telling us to do, and it's the time to act and time for concrete action. This is from the press conference Macron put on just after the proposals were handed over. He begins by talking about his promise from the start that the proposals will be passed sans filter, or without filter. 
I had told you, all the successful and precise proposals will be transmitted without filter. But now, face to face with these measures, Macron announced a change in tack. He said he would implement all the changes with a catch. By effectively transmitting all of your proposals, with the exception of three jokers, which I told you about in January. Macron gave himself three vetoes, which he called his joker cards. He said he mentioned them in January, but this was the first that anyone else had heard of them. And where your standard deck of cards has two jokers, Macron gave himself three. The first one was reduction of speed limits on motorways from 130 kilometers an hour to 110. This was already a hot-button issue in France and one of the catalysts for the Yellow Vests movement. We said, don't make the same mistake as me. Uh, We won't endorse this measure. And then the other measure that he, Macron, vetoed was taxing corporate dividends to finance the ecological transition. That was their funding plan, a tax on big corporations. And uh, he said that this would uh, threaten France's competitiveness. So obviously he's a very uh, liberal uh, politician. I guess there was some uh, ideology here that motivated him to, to reject this measure. The third was even more contentious. It was about the most radical proposal that the collective suggested. And then the last measure that he he vetoed was the recognition of the crime of ecocide. Uh, which he said was too risky. This proposal wanted to make it a crime to commit ecocide, its environmental destruction. By making it a criminal offence, the head of a company responsible for, say, an oil spill could be sent to prison. Passing the bill would have made France the first country in the world to do this. But Macron rejected it. Instead, he promised to push ecocide as an offence, so not quite as serious as a crime. Did you think that Macron was going to introduce all the recommendations? Like, did you ever think that that was going to happen? Tricky question, because I wanted to believe it, but at the same time, I know a bit about the political field in France, and I'm not so naive about it. So maybe maybe I knew this was not going to happen in the end. So... Yeah, there is yeah, there is a lot about words in French politics like and phrases, you know. So that's not just French politics by the way. Yeah. World world right <laughs> politics actually. And, uh, yeah. So so I try not to just put, focus my mind on the on the words but also on the act. Amandine didn't lose hope. There were still 147 more measures waiting to become law. Macron followed through and pushed them into parliament. Catan says this is where it got worse. The big disappointment came clearly after that, when they realized that the the, the law bill was uh, much weaker than what their proposals taken together. It's called the Climate and Resilience Law 2021. The problem was, in their journey through the Houses of Parliament, these measures became more and more watered down. Take Amandine's proposal for a ban on car ads. This didn't go through. Instead, they decided that car ads would have warning labels on them. It's like how it works with cigarettes, except the messages are like, consider carpooling and hashtag move pollute less. It's not yet fully clear if these watered down laws will cut France's greenhouse gas emissions by 40%. That's the thing with the French Citizens' Assembly. 
On paper, the experiment failed. And Gatan, who wanted to study the gap between politics and climate action, his initial doubts were confirmed. Strictly speaking, the output of the convention is sound, ambitious and coherent. But then the follow-up is very disappointing. It makes even more transparent the gap between the people's expectations and what the political governments are able to do. The French Citizens' Assembly wasn't the big fireworks moment that people expected, but it didn't end here. The Assembly made waves that rippled out into French society. The 149 measures put radical ideas for climate policy on the table. It became pub talk and dinner party conversation. For Gatan, this was something he could never achieve on his own. It has really reinforced some kind of legitimacy around the policy proposal. Just mentioning the fact that this was proposed by the assembly legitimizes it in the public debate. So that's that's a very uh, positive uh, outcome, I would say. For Amandine, she was crushed to see their policies dismissed and weakened. The Citizens' Assembly was wrapped up, but she hasn't stopped fighting. Today, if I was just telling you about, like, it's a mess, we were all disappointed by the French experiment, it's not really encouraging, I mean, for other countries to, to do so. And I still think that this process need to need to spread. So do you consider it a successful experiment in the end? I mean, on a personal level, when you talk to all the citizens that were part of it, it was really a life-changing for them, a life-changing experience. I mean, it's a success for me because now I know what I want to fight for in my citizen life. And it's changing also, I don't know, the vision of my work, the vision of my daily life. Some of the citizens started to do politics also. They were elected on a local and regional level, or they were now involved in national presidential campaign because they know they have the legitimacy to do so. And they feel like they need to continue this mission they were they were chosen at random for in the first place. But there is something like really of a commitment that is really deep. And so for us, it was so meaningful that I cannot say it's not a success on that. Amadine ended up getting a job, by the way. She now works at the Palace of Versailles, once upon a time, the decadent centre for French royal life. So it's a little ironic that Amadine's also a passionate advocate for the role of democracy in fighting climate change. She even got a chance to speak about her experiences in the Citizens' Assembly at COP26 in Glasgow. The Assembly changed her life, and she wants her to change other people's lives too. It's really important first to give you the opportunity to connect with the society of your country and feel that you are connected and you want the same good and the same interest. And that is so precious today. And after I spoke to Amandine about this, France announced a restriction on fossil fuel ads. A total ban on ads by oil and gas companies was one of the measures first pitched by the Citizens' Assembly. And while this new law doesn't go as far as the Assembly's proposal, it does make France the first country in the world to do this. So now I'm back with Nicole Corrado, a professor of political sociology at the University of Canberra. 
Nicole, the goal of the French version of the Citizens' Convention for Climate Change was to come up with a climate policy that would get France to its emission targets of 40% by 2030. And they couldn't really do it at the end of the day. But at the same time, we heard from Amandine and also Catan that they felt like it was really successful and it won in other ways. Do you think it was worth it? I think it's worth it. It's worth it in the sense that it demonstrated a proof of concept that you can trust ordinary citizens to come up with intelligent climate policies, policies that are even more progressive than what parliaments can come up with. I think what's beautiful about the French Assembly is that we saw ordinary people from bus drivers to students to nurses to refugees contributing to policymaking in an intelligent and informed manner. I know you mentioned um, dictatorships at the start, but if we were to have a climate dictatorship here, I'd really like you to lead it, please, Nicole. (laughs) (laughs) That is counterintuitive to who I am. (laughs) Oh, I just love your ideas. I'll follow you anywhere. Appreciate it so much. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Nicole Carato there, rounding off with Joe Lauder, who is the host of Who's Gonna Save Us, a new ABC podcast, taking on climate change, one inspired action at a time. My thanks this week to sound engineers Hamish Camilleri and Angie Grant and to executive producer of Who's Gonna Save Us, Joel Werner. You can catch me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell and be sure to tell your friends about the Science Friction Podcast and the Who's Gonna Save Us podcast. You can follow both on the ABC Listen app or wherever you love catching up with your favourite must-listen podcasts. I'll catch you next time. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.